Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everybody. Before I introduce the guest for today, I wanted just to make mention of a few things happening in the world locally and globally. And I'm sure there are many more things happening. And this is not to ignore all the other things. But I want to mention first, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is calling on quote-unquote licensed professionals and members of the general public to report the parents of transgender minors to state authorities if they appear to be receiving gender-affirming medical care. The Department of Family and Protective Services are to be called to conduct a prompt and thorough investigation of any reported instances of minors undergoing elective procedures. So because of that, he added also that state law provides criminal penalties for failure to report such child abuse. And that means that anyone who has any issue with any of this can report a medical professional, a parent, a family. It is going to be creating, if it hasn't already, many vigilantes, people who can just take the law into their own hands, basically. And globally, right now, as I record this, there is a war going on in Ukraine. And I am sending my good wishes, as we all are, for safety, for healing, for help to the Ukrainian people, and a thank you to all of the Russian citizens who are uprising, who are meeting to protest what is happening at the hands of their government. What happens so often is that people turn on the innocent, and that's what's happening locally with people who are transgender or their parents, and globally with Ukrainian people. A few months ago, there was a guest on our show, Olga, who helps to work at an organization called stopfake.org. And she was keeping track of Russian propaganda that was infiltrating Ukrainian news and causing infighting between the Ukrainian people a very common tactic with Russian politics, something that they tried to do here as well with some success, having people turn on each other so that the country itself is weakened and then they can gain more control and that people are going to be so busy fighting each other and so distracted by fighting each other that they won't notice what the government or what the Russian government is doing behind their backs. It is something that will probably continue to happen, but it's so important to make people aware of it, that if the news is causing you to turn on your fellow man or woman, then there might be something, an outside force, that is benefiting from you doing that, from you turning your sights away from them onto your neighbor. It is a sad time, but also it's a time of great education. And the world has mobilized in support of the Ukrainian people. We wish you all the best.
And for today on the show, we have Kelly Teal, who is a highly sought-after speaker and consultant to families and organizations regarding high-demand groups and narcissistic personalities. She's dedicated to helping people reclaim their freedom and regain a sense of themselves. Her lifelong journey and personal experience as a seeker of human potential and spirituality taught her to identify the many methods used by high-demand groups, cults of personality, and narcissistic trends, how they attract, how they indoctrinate, control their followers. She understands how to identify the red flags and suggest a course of action, recommend professional resources for interventions, and so on. She does quite a lot. And she's had personal experience. She was part of the Executive Success Program, ESP, that is part of Nexium, a high-demand group whose leader was convicted of federal crimes, including sex trafficking. And Nexium has been the subject of multiple documentaries on HBO and A&E and STARS. Kelly joins us today to talk about her personal journey and her healing and what she wants us to learn from her experiences. Here's Kelly now. I want to welcome Kelly to the show today. I'm so happy to have you on. This is a conversation that I've really been looking forward to. So before we get started, can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what brings you to the show? Yes. um, My name is Kelly Teal, and I'm a voiceover actress and author and a mother of four. And I am also a former member of Nixium. I was one of a handful of women who came forward to speak about our experiences, and we uh, did that on the STARS documentary called Seduced Inside the Nixium Cult. And right now, I'm currently writing a book about my experiences called Unapologetically Glorious, and I take any opportunity that I can to talk about things like cults and try to help people see the warning signs. That's wonderful. And I'm so happy about all that you're doing to educate people uh, on so many different levels. So when we talk about cults, you know, a lot of people will say, well, what makes a group a cult? And I know that that's something that we've talked about. It's something that was discussed on the show Seduce. So when you think about Nexium, the heavy hitting characteristics that you notice that really separate this group from a healthy organization or business, what makes it a cult? Looking back now, when I joined the uh, organization, I didn't see these things. But looking back, what really makes, I think, Nixium different is the community. You know, a lot of the cults have these communities. But for me, the community was very much like myself. And we all had this mission that we're going to make the world a better place. And we all thought of ourselves as humanitarians. And the other really big sign, I think, is love bombing. And that's when someone, they, they embrace you so quickly. It's kind of like you're dating somebody and all of a sudden they say they love you on the first date. That's, you know, that's a big sign. But in, in this organization, I, I felt like, oh, I've, I found my people, so to speak. The idea that you're on some sort of mission and you feel like humanitarians, then I think it lowers your defenses to the people who are in charge because you think if they're going to be guiding you to do something good in the world, then they must be good people too. 
And then you find out that they're not, which is something that we will certainly talk about. The love bombing, what kind of form did that come in in the group? In the beginning for me, it was, there was a a very welcoming sort of environment when you first walked in the door for the very first class. It was very much complimentary. Uh, You are, you're really intelligent. You are so um, well-spoken. You really are getting the curriculum. Um, Let's go to lunch. And over lunch, there would be talking about the curriculum, talking about what was going on. And then it was a lot of compliments. So you really felt like, wow, these people really like me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that feels good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It always feels good. And you don't know to think of it as too much, I guess, especially when it's coming from different sources and different people. So did you feel like you had something in common with these people when you first met them? In the beginning, when I first walked in, I didn't feel like I had a lot in common with them. They seemed to be super hip and cool, and they seemed to have it all together. And when I I was going to these self-help groups or this human potential organization that I thought it was, because I didn't feel good about myself, I felt like I needed something. And so I didn't feel like I really had a lot in common with them in the beginning, but I wanted to be more like them. I wanted to have the confidence they seemed to have. I wanted to have this sort of assurance that they kind of knew how to do life, so to speak. How interesting, right? Because that was going to be my next question about what your reasoning was for getting involved. And so it was to kind of get your life on track. And what else? What else was driving you to be involved? Well, I had come to a place in my life where I felt like I, I, I couldn't figure it out. Like I was missing something. I felt I was not okay. So I was looking for ways and had been looking for ways throughout my life to kind of be out of pain and to feel better. And I kept thinking there's some key. Someone has a key that has the, the answer to what I need. So when I joined Nixium or when I started going to these classes, I felt like they, that they kind of had the key. Okay. Okay. So when you think they have the key, then you're going to be very excited. And I wonder if you were feeling that way, kind of the, the excitement of possibility at the beginning. In the very first days, I was sort of watching and, and wondering how this was all going to go. After three days of being in basically almost 12-hour classes with the same people and the same teachers and coaches, after the third day, I started to think, okay, they just might have the key. And over time, I really started to believe it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all at once. It was, a, it was a slow sort of, well, indoctrination. Right. Right. So here you are. You're on board. and. Tell the people who are listening kind of a day in the life. What was a typical day in Nexium for you? I know it probably changed over time, but sort of maybe a couple different typical days. So a typical day as a student, you would arrive at the center, wherever that was, at 7, 30, 8 o'clock, have a little bit of breakfast, a vegetarian breakfast, and then you would go right into what they called was, was a, a teaching so one of the, the head teachers, head trainers would give a class for probably a lecture for maybe half an hour, 45 minutes. And then everyone would break into groups. So let's say there were 25 students. They would broke, break into five groups of five, each with a coach, and discuss terminology. And a terminology like what is good and what is bad. 
And we'd all kind of try to figure out, like, how do you explain good? How do you explain bad? It's, it's kind of actually hard to articulate. And so we would always get a little confused. And then we would go back and they would tell us what good or bad meant. And it was usually a definition that didn't really always fit the definition if you looked it up in the dictionary. But we weren't looking it up in the dictionary. So we would have these circles and these lectures over the first part of the morning, maybe three or four, and then we'd have lunch. And then we would come back and we would have three or four more lectures. And then we would have maybe a dinner break somewhere in there. And this would go on until about nine o'clock at night. As she went through the program, maybe on day three, they started doing these exploration of meanings which were each student would be with a coach and they would deep dive into something that was a trigger for you. Um, something, it was sort of a psychological sort of NLP digging into your <laughs> trauma. And so th this would go on for five days. And if you continued on with the program, it would go on for 16 days. So that at the life of a student was fairly, it was, a, it was a slow process of sort of indoctrination into their program. But the life of a coach, especially a lower-end coach like myself, was much different. There was a lot of work involved. So we would be supporting these classes. We'd get there at like 6.37 in the morning, make the coffee, get all the food together, clean the bathrooms, everything that needs to be done, and coach these classes and um, basically be running around all day doing everything that needs to be done and get home or to the hotel or wherever I was staying sometimes after the coach's meeting, 11, 12 o'clock at night, and then get up and do this again. Wow. So after a while, I know people talk about just going on adrenaline. That they're, yes. Coffee yeah. and adrenaline. Coffee. Coffee and adrenaline. Wow. Okay. So to go back to these, the exploration of meaning, the EMs are, are something that a lot of people talk about as having been transformational, but also potentially disturbing and manipulating. So I'm wondering what that process was like for you. In the beginning, my very first EM was with, uh, I forget, it was a higher level uh, coach who flew in from Canada. And she asked me what I wanted to work on. And I told her that I, as a child, or, or rather as an adult, I was very, very nervous about speaking in public. Like I just couldn't do it. And so she took me back to my childhood where in sixth grade during my grammar school graduation, I was left standing on the bleachers because I forgot to call my name because my name had changed. My, my mom had remarried and somehow didn't make the roster. And I was standing there when they got to Z and I was crying and it was very traumatic for me at, at you know, that age. And so she brought me back to that and um, we talked about it and I started to sort of see it a little bit different. And when I went to speak in front of the class, uh, five or six days later, when I went to Albany, I took the five days in Los Angeles, loved it so much, hopped on a plane, went to Albany right away, started day six through 10 and ended up staying through 16. On day, when I got to Albany, I needed to introduce myself to the uh, students I had not met before. And I was able to do it with no, I felt like I wasn't nervous. And I thought, oh, goodness, this is working. It's proof in the pudding. Like, here it is. So I was, at that point, I was all in. Like, I was, that was it for me. Right, right. Okay, so you had already seen a transformation. Yes. And you had gotten past a fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, how nice that you were able to experience that. I'm actually happy for you that you were able to do that. And That was once. <laughs> that was once. 
<laughs> okay. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that now that skill is being used to educate people about the group, which is, you know, as it should be. And at the same time, that means that during this whole period of time, you were introduced to different people and different personalities. And I'm wondering about the people and the personalities that have kind of stayed with you, what your first impression was, or even if you had kind of a off impression about them. And, you know, a lot of people think back on who they met and what they thought at first and how it transformed over time. So who do you think about when you think about your time in the group? I think a lot about Nancy Salzman. I think about Alison Mack. I think about Mark Elliott, Mark Vicente. There's many people that I actually think about a lot because I was with them so much and they became like a family. And if I could step back just for one second on the EMs. Mm -hmm. So I had one good experience, maybe a few good experiences with the EMs, but I also had some fairly traumatic experiences and I saw traumatic experiences because they were not professionally they weren't done by professionals and they should never have been happening. I just want people to know that these were dangerous, dangerous um, procedures. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So let's stay on that for a moment. So some of the things that you saw that were upsetting and disturbing uh, were what? Because those stay with you too. So I never got to the place where I could actually administer an exploration meeting, but I sat in on many of them with the higher level coaches. And there were times when people would get into very traumatic memories like rape, abuse, huge car accidents, things that are, are, can cause a lot of PTSD. And I saw people become very scared, very emotional, and re-traumatized. And I also at times felt that we shouldn't be going this far. I'm listening to something that shouldn't be going this far, but I didn't really have, I didn't really feel at the time I had a way to stop it because I really felt that the people that were administering these EMs were doing something good and it was helpful and that the student or the person receiving the EM would ultimately be okay. I look back now and realize we were all out of our league. Mm. It's so dangerous. Very. Wow. Right. And then what would happen if someone was traumatized by this? Then what would happen to them? Well, there were times when people would run out the door or hysterically run into the bathroom or behave in a way that people do when they're traumatized. And so a higher level coach uh, would go after them and talk to them one-on-one. Uh, some Most of the time, I really wasn't present for something like that, but it was basically they would be talking to them and talking them back into the room, calming them down, getting them to understand that pushing through their fears and their pain was was growth. You're growing. You're growing through this. Right. And that is often how it's talked about. When people don't have the qualifications to know how to handle something safely, they then are expecting at times that people are going to have a huge reaction or a traumatic response. And then they have a way of justifying that, like you're saying, that it's for your growth or you're pushing through or you've reached another level or it's something you had to face. And there is this sort of no pain, no gain idea that gets instilled, I think, in some of these groups that the harder it is, the better it is. But that's not necessarily actually accurate in terms of psychological health. Correct. And the the thing that everyone would say often was that love is painful. And growth is painful. So if you're not experiencing pain or discomfort, 
you're not growing. And so there was all this language around being too comfortable and not being in enough pain, not struggling enough, not not pushing forward hard enough through all of these um, emotions. So emotions were great. They loved emotions. They loved to see people crying and, and feeling all of this trauma again. What is important too is that so much of what happens that feels meaningful in these groups is manufactured and you're given a topic to deal with and you're pushed to have to address it and dig into it. And then I think you can have this feeling like you've really gotten to this other place in your life or in your psyche and that you can also then feel very close to the people who you did this with. And I wonder if that's also something that happened. I believe that we all felt that we were in this special sort of little life in a way that there was people on the outside who didn't get it and we got it and we wanted other people to get it and we wanted to bring these other people in to get it. That was our sort of part of our mission. And we all felt we were doing this thing together and it felt really good because we felt like we were on the same page and we were also using words and, you know, language within Nixium that only we understood. So, you know, some, you know, we would use words like um, they don't get it or um, they're suppressives or there were many words that we would use that was kind of like Nixium lingo that I knew that no one on the quote unquote outside would understand. So that's kind of why we all felt like we were kind of on this mission that we were in a way special and we were doing something so good to help humanity. And we were all on the same page. And it, and I did feel, it did feel good. It felt like a really close community. Mm, I'm struck by the phrase uh, suppressive because of course, knowing about Scientology and knowing the interplay sometimes between different cultic groups and the adoption of certain techniques and certain language. Of course, I'm wondering about you know, your reflections now thinking about uh, the Saltzmans and thinking about Keith, you know, I'd love you to be able to talk about what you thought about them and what you think about them now. Well, Nancy, I looked at like a older sister, mother sort of figure. I really believed in her and she did help me in some areas. But as I look back on my experience with her, I also see how controlled I was and how I was allowing her to control me because, you know, she sort of reminded me a little bit of my mother, not in the controlling way, but how my mother wasn't that controlling. And I think I was looking for sort of a, a, a more of a someone in my life, like a mother figure who would help me sort of find my way and was a little more giving me boundaries and kind of telling me what to do in a way. So her, I really felt I was close to, but then after looking back, I realized it was not a good situation. And I didn't know Keith very well. I met him once. or to, Well, I met him formally once at, at a volleyball game. Uh, I don't want to use the word coerced, but I was really encouraged to meet with him. And I first I said no. It was after I was a student, and it was after the intensive like day 10 and I was really tired and I was encouraged to go meet him at volleyball. And I said, no, I'm really going to go back to the hotel. I'm so tired. And then someone else came in and said, you know, Jim Del Negro came in and said, this is a real honor. You have to meet him. You can't say no. I was really pushed by a couple of people to go and meet him. And so I did. And, you know, my first impression of Keith was sort of 
he came up to me and he was waiting for us to get there. He walked across the volleyball court and he said, are you a hugger? Mm-hmm. I have never been asked that before. Mm-hmm. So I sometimes when you don't have a grasp on things totally, you don't know what to say. So right. I said, yes. And so he gave me a hug and then uh, he talked to me about, he, he knows all about me. He knows that I flew from Los Angeles and it was really creepy. And I thought he was just kind of weird. I thought the whole thing was weird. And that to me honestly was a big red flag right from the beginning when I was still fully here, <laughs> so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. It was a red flag. I thought, why does this guy want to meet me? What does he want? It was a natural instinct to, to think these things. And so I met, I met him and I spent some time with him at V Week and things like that, but I never got to spend a lot of time with him. So there were many people in Nixium that I spent time with that I look back now and realize some of them were just bad people and some were just sort of following the rules like I was, kind of going with the program and doing the same thing that I was. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people leave feeling guilty that they transmitted messages or techniques that they had learned from on high and that they really did believe that this was the way to help people and to guide people, to teach people, to help people have these sort of self-revelations. But, you know, at the end of the day, were they helping or were they just doing and sort of parroting what they had been taught? And were they creating harm? Most of the people have, I think, good intentions and really are doing things for the right reasons. It, It becomes, I think, chilling when you can delineate who's not doing it for the right reasons. That is the scary part. And, you know, I've thought about this for a couple of years and I honestly think there weren't that many that were bad intentions. I think most, and I mean, I'm like 95% of the people were good intention and they thought they were doing the right thing. That's my interpretation. That's how I, how I see it. So. Yeah. And that's pretty typical statistically speaking with the people who have left groups They really do think or they did think that this was something that if it benefited them, it's going to benefit other people, right? They they got the gift of something, they want to share it. That's a great intention. That makes it very easy to recruit when you believe in something. Like I believed in it. I recruited so many people because I believed in it so much. I was excited about it. It was so easy for me to talk about it because I I believed in it 100%. I felt like a different person. I was a different person. It's just that you know, I didn't realize that person is not who I actually wanted to be. But that took that's later. <laughs> right. And I do. I want to get back to that. The person you wanted to be. Um, I want you just to if you can explain to the people listening what V Week is, because you mentioned it. And uh, it's so interesting for so many reasons. So V Week originally started out as a, a weekend for Keith Raniere. And we all called Keith Raniere Vanguard. And V Week stands for Vanguard Week. Well, it became a week. It actually became, I think, two weeks. I attended once uh, in the two and a half year, two years that I was in Nixium, I attended one. And it's basically a day camp for adults at a lake in New York State, Lake George, I believe. And it's at the YMCA. And it's a ton of fun. They have these classes where you can learn to play the bongos, you can learn to sing, and they have people within the Nixium group who are sort of professionals in the area. So you might have a Broadway singer who teaches singing classes. And so you do that throughout the day, and you meet as a big group with Nancy Salzman, and she teaches one of her classes. 
you eat dinner together in a cafeteria style. Everybody's sort of in cabins and YMCA type of, of housing. And Keith will come and speak to people at night in a big auditorium. So there's sailing and you're busy during the day. And it's, um, it's actually was, it was, you know, at the time it felt like fun because I'm with this group of people and everybody's happy. Everybody's dancing. They have socials at night. And it's kind of like just a camp for adults that is just fun and everybody gets it. Okay. And now looking back on it, do you have a different impression of it? (laughs) Yes. I look back on it and I realize that all of that happiness that we had, all of that fun sort of up positive things. Not, not everyone was happy all the time. People had breakdowns. I mean, I had a breakdown myself a couple of times. Nancy came in and cleaned that up. And, you know, there were moments where I would fall apart. But overall, I realized that everybody was, it was this happiness wasn't real. Nothing about it was real. It was all this sort of, we believed we needed to be happy in order not to be punished by the next person over saying, what's wrong with you? You need an EM or you're, you're acting as if you're entitled. That was what they always said to me. Or you're acting like a, uh, an entitled child. Maybe you need an EM. And so you wanted to avoid that because after a while it gets kind of old and you don't want everyone to think that you're not, that you don't get it. And so you keep yourself up in this kind of heightened state of I'm having a good time. Now, there were moments of it that were kind of fun, the social parts and things like that. But the rest of it, I look back and think that whole thing was like, it wasn't even real. Mm -hmm. Just wasn't real. Right. And what I also always found interesting about it was the name of it. So if it really was about you, right, it should be called something else, not VWE after him. But if you want it to be about you and you need that kind of adoration, sure, you're going to name it after you. There are all these little tells along the way in retrospect. There's always sort of this catalyst, this point where you start to find that it's turning and things are changing and you're not quite sure if this is right. And so I'm wondering about that. And then I want to certainly get back to your point about becoming the person you wanted to be or not there. So what started to shift and led to you eventually leaving? It's not a one moment thing that happens. It's not just something shifts and then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I see it all. It's, it's mm-hmm. sort of a, for me particularly, it was, a, it was a fairly slow process within the same context of sort of depending on who you are. So for me, I was starting to feel, I was starting to feel controlled. I didn't realize I was feeling controlled, but I started to get a little angry and short. Now, granted, I was tired, exhausted. I was working for free and, uh, I got a call from someone in Canada who said, have you read the Frank Report? And I said, oh, no, I don't read the Frank Report. No one reads the Frank Report. You know, that's all fake news. And she said, I got to send you this link. And she sent me a link. I checked it out eventually. And it talked all about Keith, the branding, and DOS. And it opened my eyes and I was like, whoa. And then I started calling people and everyone saying, it's a big thing in Nixium. Do you have any data on that? Well, no, I don't have any data in the Frank report. Well, that's not data, they would tell me. And I would get talked back off the ledge, so to speak, or my questioning, right? I wasn't even on the ledge quite yet, just the questioning of it. And then after a period of time, things started coming out in the news. Sarah, Sarah Edmondson's New York Times came out with her brand and everything else. So things started to become a little more clear. I started having some data on that. 
The thing I think that was the actual turning point after quite a few of these things was Dr. Yanya Lalich's book. Someone sent that to me in the mail. Don't know who. I opened it up and I read the first chapter, not even the whole chapter, just some of it. And she described Nixium. She was describing cults in general, but she described Nixium to a T. And that was the first time that I started putting things together. Like, that's exactly what we do. Oh, and that's what we do. And the love bombing and this and that. Oh, my gosh. And I slammed the book shut and I threw it across the room. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm in a cult. And from that point, then I got myself out. I still wasn't out inside. You know, that takes a while, too. So then the healing process started. And I worked with you and a few other people and, and, and finally got to a place where I now uh, can talk to you about this without crying. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is true. That is true. You can. Believe me, I understood the tears. And it's a lot. That moment where you say, oh, I'm in a cult, then you, I'm sure, start to think about the things that happen. And now you have labels for them. Oh, that was this technique. And that was this manipulative thing. And if I didn't know about branding and DOS, kind of, I think the question would be, what else is happening that I don't know about? And how come I didn't know? And why are these secrets? And you know, it starts to break everything down just in terms of your ability to trust the people there. Well, I had been being recruited into DOS at that same time. Wow. There had already been conversations about collateral. I, when I saw the Frank report and I saw the word collateral, that really opened my eyes. And that's when I started making phone calls to find out, is this what you were trying to get me to join? Because I was told it was a sorority of women that were sort of like, kick-ass women's boot camp that were going to be help me become more measurable and accountable, which is Nixon was always talking about being more measurable and accountable and pushing, pushing, pushing. And so, of course, I wanted to do that. So this group of women sounded like, okay, this could be something that could push me a little further. But the collateral is what caught me. And I wasn't ready. And I talk about this in my book. And it's actually, it's, a, it's kind of funny because I don't actually say anything. Because I want to say yes, but I also know somewhere deep down inside, this is just no, 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 no. But I didn't know how to do it. And I think a lot of people get caught in that um, kind of loop of not really knowing what to do. Right. There are a lot of people who describe to me being questioned and wishing that they could just silently turn and run the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? right. Like, uh, I'm out of here. Um, and avoid right? Because you know what kind of response you're going to get if you say no. Mm. And also if you say yes, what internally is going to be going on for you that is going to be making you wonder why you just said yes, if that's not really how you feel. And I was a mess at that point. Like, and I just avoided phone calls. I was starting to feel the control thing coming on. And I was already at that point, don't want to have that conversation again. So let's just not pick up the phone when that person calls, you know? So I was, I was doing like all these weird things and I couldn't address it straightforward at the time. Now, you know, it'd, it'd be much different. Oh yeah. I mean, I think most people avoid, avoid, avoid. Yeah. <laughs> okay. was, uh-huh. yeah avoid, delay, ignore. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of that because you're not ready to confront another person or, or, really confront it for yourself, I think, and have the words 
to use and be able to back them up. There's this other thing that happens, I think, with people where they feel like they have to explain themselves and they might not know how to do that. And I, I try to remind people of this as much as possible, that no is an answer. You don't have to justify it. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to have proof about why and, and have backup material. You're not on the witness stand. You can just say no. I wish I had had that tool in my pocket because I think that is a very useful thing for anyone to know, especially young women to know that no is an answer and you do not have to qualify it. Right. You know, here, a lot of these groups will tell you that you have to act with integrity, right? You have to be able to back up what you're saying. So you're so used to feeling like it's a no because, <laughs> right? And it's the because part that you have to be all prepared for, but nope, no period. The end. And the because part opens you up to people who are trying to manipulate you to try to change your mind. And then you get into an argument that you may not be prepared for. Like you may not have the ability to argue on that level, let's say, because you don't understand the language completely, or they're using words that against you, like the loaded language and things like that. So yeah, it's, it can be tricky. So I want to be able to get back to something that you were saying just about collateral. That's a word that I'm familiar with, uh, but a lot of people are familiar with it, but don't know how it's applied to this group. So if you don't mind just taking a second explaining that, that would be good. When I was asked for collateral, it was being used to keep the conversation I was having with this person confidential, meaning give me the collateral and then I can tell you more about this group, but I can only tell you so much. And the collateral was different for everyone. The collateral that I was being asked for later um, so after this conversation, I had a couple more conversations with this person, and then I stopped talking to her. She had asked me for collateral in the form of, I have a healing practice. And she said, you can just do a video that your healing practice is bogus and that you are lying to people and things like that. Now, I was totally indoctrinated. So at the moment, she's saying this. I'm like, okay, well, this only involves me and it's not going to hurt anyone else. No one's ever probably going to see this and I'm not in, in bringing anyone else into this. So maybe I, could, I actually thought, maybe I could do this. And then later I'm like, are you crazy? And so the collateral was used as a way to get people into the group. And then once they were in the group, the collateral would continue to be requested and required the further in they got. And the collateral will get bigger. So it would go from something like what I just talked about to naked pictures, perhaps, a house deed, a bank account. I've heard of that. And then it would be used against them, the slaves, because they would, they would be manipulated into doing things like getting branded or sleeping with Keith. They would be manipulated into doing things that would definitely be going against their better judgment, but because they had this collateral over their head and they were collateralized to a point that in included other people, included things like their homes, they felt, well, how would I know I would feel like, wow, I want to protect the people that I've in incorporated into the collateral or my house, so I better do it, whatever they're requesting of me. I think with uh, collateral, I think about that in so many different groups. I think about also in Scientology, you know, with people going through this auditing, this counseling, where what you say is put into a file and then you're supposed to sh disclose everything and not have any secrets. And then there's this looming threat that if you decide to leave or if you speak out against the group, that everything will be exposed. It's used a lot. Control. And that's what this was definitely used for, was to control on a whole 
other level than in the classes in Nixium. So this was a whole separate group within Nixium. Thank you for explaining that because it shows how much people are kind of held hostage. Uh, okay, so then I think what would be good for us to do is to, I mean, there's so much more to talk about, <laughs> um, but just, I think, leaving, saying goodbye for a lot of people that they, they're worried about leaving the people there in the community, and that's sometimes the hardest part. And so I wonder about when you left and what it was like, and since then, what's been helpful along your journey of healing? When I left Nixium. It was horrible. I felt like a traitor. I felt I missed the community. I was devastated. I mean, imagine this community of people that you have that just blows up, right? And you don't even know who you can talk to because you don't know who's still in. Nobody's telling the truth. Everybody acts like they're out, but they're really in and vice versa. And so I attended part of Keith Raniere's trial when Lauren Salzman was giving her testimony in New York. And I walked in and there were a handful people that were still in sitting on the on one side of the, the bench. And I felt like, and this is, I'd been out already for over a year and I felt like a traitor. I felt guilty. I felt bad. I'm like, these people don't like me anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the, on the other side now there. And I, and part, so much of Nixium was always about community and being as a group. There was no two sides in Nixium. We were all in. And so to have people that you cared about, people that you spent a lot of time with, sitting next to you, throwing daggers at you, you could just feel it, mm. was horrible. Mm -hmm. And so every step I think that I took from leaving Nixium to starting the documentary with Cecilia Peck and having conversations with her and the other former members and you and, and um, Yanya and everyone that was involved in that documentary all helped me take a little step forward to healing. And I did tapping therapy. I did lots of meditation. I did a lot of reading. And I think for me, the biggest part of healing was really understanding what a cult is. And it doesn't look like Charles Manson and dead chickens. It, you know, it can look very um, normal. It can be just two people. And I think just the education that I, I, I got and the experiences I was so fortunate to have with with making the documentary and meeting all of you um, helped me to move through it. And then writing this book has been like unbelievably therapeutic for me. I'm so glad. Right. I mean, writing is such a catharsis and it also is such a clarifier because, oh yeah, right. You have to kind of put it into a way that is understandable that, and that makes sense. And you have to have it make sense to you before you can have it make sense to other people. So I think it's a, it's a great exercise. I hope to write a book one day. I'm asked all the time and I don't have the time, but I will, I will get to it. Um, but I do know that it's hard. I, when I think about writing, I think about how do I narrow it down? How do I, how do I narrow down what I've experienced into this way? But that also helps you be kind of almost economical in your words, which means you have to choose each word carefully and really know what those words mean and learn. You know, a lot of people will also ask former members questions uh, as though they said, I studied that cult for 10 years, but really what they said was I was in that cult for 10 years. So you don't know why it happens and how it happened necessarily, but it is so important to find out. 
It's also so important to find out about what drives a person like Keith to do that. So then you know how much you need to pay attention to the things that he said about you and the things that he said about other people and the things that he said to be true. Because if it's coming from that source, someone who's not well, then it helps, I don't know, like take the sting out of some of the ways that you may have felt criticized about yourself. Well, I mean, there was a lot of shame and embarrassment when I left left Nixium. For myself, I felt very embarrassed. And during this process of healing, I started owning my story. And I think that's a huge part of healing for a lot of people is to own your story without shame or blame. And it's hard to do because you really have to reflect and look back and take responsibility for some parts of it. And you got to really get in there and be okay. When I first started doing interviews and podcasts, and it was really hard for me because I hadn't forgiven myself yet. I still hadn't processed so much of it. And, and once I went through this journey and, and really one day woke up when Seduced came out and I was like, okay, it's out now. Okay, so I can run because I don't like the way I look on film or anything like that. I can either run from this, which I really wanted to do, but it was already out there, or I can just own it. And at that point, when I actually saw the first episode, I don't remember if you were there or not, but you were there for one of them. I remember sitting there in Cecilia's backyard and saying to myself, I could get up and run out of here right now, or I can just sit here and I can own it. And that's kind of where I, the tipping point was for me. I was like, it's already out there. There's nothing I can do to take it back. And so then, for, so for me, that was, a, that was a big point. But not everybody gets to do that. No, not everyone gets to do that. And right. And I think about Cecilia Peck and Inbal and all the people who were involved in and how much they are heroes in so many people's lives because they said, you have a story to tell. But it's also a really important way, I think in the way that a story is handled, where it redistributes shame and blame. And I think that's a very important piece. Um, I, I remember being asked to be quoted in an article where they were talking about, it was called Nexium, the sex cult. And I said, I will participate in an article if you change the title. And they said, what do you mean? I said, you can't call it the sex cult because then anyone coming out who didn't have that experience at all is if they want to tell their story and they say they were in Nexium, people are going to have that. Oh, the sex cult. <laughs> well, where do you go from there? And do you just want to hide and have to explain? Oh, that wasn't my experience. And I, I know that with the title, it has to be kind of reductionist because it's just a few words, but still don't put that on people. I thought that was really, that's hard to climb out of. I am glad that you stayed there and you owned your space and your right to be there. And I hope in retrospect, it is clear for you and for all others in this group and others about who's to blame and who's to carry the shame and who's not. And even if it's run by someone who's narcissistic, which means that they probably don't have the ability to feel shame, it doesn't mean that then it should fall on you. It still belongs to them. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So many people leave these organizations and they don't have access to a lot of help and they don't have a way to sort of take that shame and put it back where it belongs. And that's why I think what you're doing is amazing. And I think that all of the ways to, to help educate people 
in about how these organizations and how they operate are great. And Seduce Documentary has that seducedocumentary.com where they can find resources like you and other people if they are struggling or someone they love is struggling. So good. Can you talk also about the comedy show that was done and how powerful that was? I think a lot of people don't know about it and it was fantastic for a lot of reasons. That was really special. And I was so proud of them for putting that together. And I just loved being there watching them. But the power in that was being able to look back on your life or experience and find the humor because humor is healing. Laughter is healing. And to be able to look back and see things as how some of those things were so ridiculous in Nixium and we just didn't see it. But to be able to laugh at ourselves that we didn't see it, not the dangerous parts, but just the ridiculous things like calling him Vanguard, for goodness sakes. I mean, Vanguard's a mutual fund. You know, it's like, you know, it's just, it's so ridiculous, but it was just so empowering for them and for everyone, for all of us watching. India was there as well. And to be able to laugh together about an experience that we all had together that wasn't wonderful by any means, but to be, there was, it was just very healing to be able to laugh. Mm, So it was so important that it happened. So just as we're finishing up, tell people everything. Where can they find you? What you're working on? What's happening? Just so they can kind of follow uh, all that you're doing and all that you've put together. You can find me on Instagram at the Kelly Teal. And I also have a website called kellyteal.com. And I am getting ready to publish a book here very shortly called Unapologetically Glorious. And it is about my experiences in Nixium, along with a lot of other experiences I've had in my life and how I have found sort of just my, my own personal healing journey to where I am today. So good. So nice. And I thank you. I thank you for, for doing something that I think is very important. And this is not to say that people who don't do it are somehow doing something wrong because everyone is on a different journey and has different abilities and is in a different process. And Sometimes it's too soon to embark on any of these things. But for you to have taken stock, like this is something that I went through. I really want to get help with it, but I want to take an action step. There's something I feel like I need to do. And I want to be able to educate and do some prevention and use my experience in this way for the greater good, for the community, and really then being truly a humanitarian coming full circle, then it's a wonderful thing to really see that in real time. So thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks so much. One more thing before you go. Thank you so, so much to Kelly. Kelly is a strong person who's been through quite a time, and I'm so happy that she contacted me to be on the show. She talked a lot about the love bombing, about having a humanitarian mission, having a sense of community and an exploration of meaning, the EMs that are talked about by people who have been involved in Nexium. And there is so much there that underscores what the attraction is and how people get drawn in and why people stay. And usually it's because they have very good intentions and they want to be accountable 
to their lives and to the mission of helping people have better lives themselves. Accountability actually is something that's often talked about in cults where the leader keeps telling people that they need to be accountable. But really, at the end of the day, the cult leader is never held accountable, nor has any interest in being held accountable for anything they do or say or promise without any intention to fulfill. I find it so interesting to hear about V-Week, V-Week being something that Kelly talked about, which is in honor of Keith Ranieri, who went by the term Vanguard. By the way, if you ever get involved in a group and the leader says, you need to call me Vanguard, mm, I think you want to find the door. Uh, it is definitely time to go because you're dealing with a full-fledged narcissist. When you have something like V-Week, that's in honor of Keith's birthday, she said it started with a weekend, then expanded to a week, and then went on to being two weeks. I wonder how long it would have become had the group stayed intact and the leader stayed out of jail. I can't imagine deciding to put together a birthday party for myself that's named after me. You have to stay for an entire weekend, and then you have to stay for an entire week or two weeks. And that while you're there, she said, people would have breakdowns. They'd be pushed to the brink. They'd be monitored to see how much they seem to be getting out of it or devoting themselves to it. And can you imagine, again, being invited to a party only to be watched and to be told how you're behaving and how you should be behaving and being called on the carpet for it? The only person who is benefiting from being there is the leader himself. There's an organization that I work with where I host a camp day at my house once a year. It's for adults with special needs, and they lost their facilities, a camp that they used to go to for a weekend. So I offer up my home and my yard to do a camp day for them. And I have often felt conflicted because people want to call it Camp Bernstein, and I don't want to call it that. I would rather it not be named after me as I'm just providing the space for it and materials and whatever else is needed and food, but it really isn't about me. And that's also why I didn't name this podcast The Rachel Bernstein Show, because it's not about me. So when you get involved in something and it becomes about the other person and is named after the other person and really only serves their purpose. And at the end of the day or the end of the week, they're the only ones who seem happy. Then that's high time for you to really look at how much you're being used to feed someone else's ego and how you will be drained while they get filled up. And that's always the way it will be. Take care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.